Kia ora, ko Anne O'Brien toku ingoa, he kaiorongi o waituhi o tamaki, no mai, haru mai. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers Festival Waituhi o Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2021 event. Three exceptional writers join Chair Paula Morris to talk about and read from their latest work. Today's lineup includes Irish actor and memoirist Gabriel Byrne with Walking with Ghosts, Melbourne based Māori crime writer JP Pomare with latest thriller Tell Me Lies, and the London based Caribbean Costa Book of the Year author Monique Roffey with The Mermaid of Black Conch. We hope you enjoy it. I am Paula Morris, speaking to you from my office at the University of Auckland, which is even untidier than my flat, I'm afraid to say. With our three writers today, we will travel the world via Zoom and through the books we'll be discussing. Now, even though we're not in the theatre with you, others are, so please double check that your phones are silenced. And if you are sharing anything from this session on social media, please do so with consideration for your fellow audience members. Uh, feel free, of course, to wear a mask if you prefer, and if you feel at all ill at any time, please feel free to leave. Remember, we can't see you. We will not be offended. So let's welcome our guest today. Joining us are Monique Roffey. Kia ora, Monique. Hi, hello from Myland, East London. Uh, kia ora. Uh, hello to uh, Josh JP Pomare. Kia ora from cold, freezing, gross Melbourne. <laughs> and uh, kia ora and welcome to Gabriel Byrne. Yes, uh, in Montana, um, where I'm presently working, and it's a beautiful day here. <laughs> Thank you very much, Gabriel. What he's not saying is that he's there filming a Western, which is very exciting. Uh, I'm going to talk to each of our guests in turn today. They'll share a reading with us, and then we'll all come together at the end for a final question or two. But our first conversation this morning is with Monique Roffey, born in Port of Spain in Trinidad and now resident in the UK. The author of six novels and a memoir, she's been described as a writer who has always swum between two continents and two cultures. Her latest book is The Mermaid of Black Conch, a vibrant, magic realist novel written in Creole English that won the Costa Book of the Year. Set largely in the 70s, but rich with history and historical legacy, it's an exploration not only of mermaid mythology, but also the impact of imperialism in the Caribbean and a parable about the strength of nature and the nature of women. The novel cites the Neruda poem, Fable of the Mermaid and the Drunks, Aikaia is a beautiful girl from the indigenous Taino people, wiped out by the conquistadors. But she survived as a mermaid, transformed into a sea-bound outcast by other women. She's caught by US tourists in a fishing contest and rescued from defilement by David Baptiste, a fisherman. Yet she remains an outsider, a figure of both fascination and danger. Kia ora and welcome, Monique. Thank you. Thank now, you. Monique, you were, I believe, shocked to win the Costa Prize for such a Caribbean novel. I read that you expected it to live a quiet life in the margins. Yeah. Why do you think it won this award that usually leans towards the more commercial? I don't know. <laughs> That's a really good... I mean, um, this book isn't written in standard English. It's written in Creole um, and also verse. And um, uh, so... Books like that tend not to get mainstream attention. Um, you do have to, you know, work a bit to uh, to to get. You have to get on board with it. Um, it's a narrative um, that comes from a region, um, uh, the Caribbean. Uh, uh, it's a trick. It's a trickle of Caribbean literature coming through uh, into the mainstream. So it's quite a kind of, you know, it's, an, it's, not, it's not a book that I would have thought had mainstream appeal, but, um, but everybody likes mermaids, so um, I'm delighted myself. <laughs> now you chose the 70s as a setting for the novel, and you've described mm. this as a time of revolution, independence, mm. nation-building in the Caribbean. Mm. I know Trinidad became a republic in 1976, that it was going through an oil boom then, that would have lasted. But can you tell us more about your fictionalised Black Conch, your imagined setting for the island, for the novel, sorry? 
Well, it's 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 obviously a composite place of of places that I know and I've been to um, in uh, coastal uh, parts of the north of Trinidad and the north of Tobago. So I spend a lot of time writing in these places over the years, over a decade or so. Um, but uh, years ago, I was in the north of Tobago where they were having a big fishing competition. And um, I just uh, was, you know, observing these uh, boats going out, coming back, uh, fish coming off the boats, being weighed, um, the, all of it, you know, fish, fish being chopped up and sold in the depot. And, um, and it, was a, it was a time when there was, some, you know, bad weather and something, you know, awful had happened in the village and some tourists had gone missing. And um, I, so it just came out of, you know, lots of people I know, places I know. And the 70s, of course, is a time of black power, um, revolution, nation building and good tracksuits. Um, so, yeah. So, yeah. Good tracksuits. Bob Marley and the Whalers, you know, good music. Now, one of your characters, Miss Rain, is a white island Creole. And in the book, she's reading Derek Walcott's first book, uh, In a Green mm. Night. And I realized that in the late 70s, he was actually living in Trinidad, where he mm. founded the Trinidad Theatre Workshop. And Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. One poem from that collection, Ruins of a Great House, seemed particularly apt to Miss Rain. And I wondered if yeah. you could talk about her as a character, as one of your central Gosh, characters. That is the most on-point question I've ever had and ever will have. Um, yeah, he did live in Trinidad for a while and set up the Trinidad um, Theatre Workshop. So Miss Rain is the remnants of what we call the plantocracy. She's a white woman um, sort of in self-exile in this big old crumbling house. And um, her lover has... Uh, horned her, as we say in Trinidad, has abandoned her with a young young child. And um, I want I, I kind of I have a huge amount of respect for Jean Reese and um, I love her. You know, I love Jean Reese. But the mad, mad white woman, um, Antoinette Cosway, I, I'm I'm a bit I'm done with her really. I'm I'm just a bit she we need we need more 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 characters in our in our canon. And I've, I've met people like Miss Rain, you know, remnants of um, the, the plantocracy living in these big houses, um, part, part of the drama um, with black and brown um, children, husbands, lovers, friends, part of the drama of what's going on around them. Um, and so I just wanted to write a contemporary character um, who isn't mad, who isn't crazy. She's actually quite likable, um, related to everybody, um, uh, has her own own drama going on, her own loss, her own suffering. Um, so I, I hope people, um, you know, find her somebody, a, a complicated character that people can relate to as opposed to kind of a, a mad woman who's also um, uh, too different to understand. Um, yeah. And just for our audience, the Jean Reese novel you're referring to is Why Sagasso Sea. Mm. And Jean Reese herself was from Dominica, as, as, yeah. uh, as many yeah. people know. So I'm um, thinking of you the way you've described yourself as a pale skinned Caribbean writer. Mm. Who's, you said you're part of a tiny canon within a canon and that we mm. deserve a voice. Mm. I wonder if you would talk about your own heritage and how your family came to be in Trinidad. Sure. Um, so my parents arrived on a boat in the 50s, in the mid-50s. And um, my father came as a sort of lowly job in a shipping company, came as a, to work as a clerk. And um, they came with two suitcases and a green bicycle on a banana boat. And they had a four-year contract. It was 1956. And as they arrived, they arrived to sort of the end of the colonial era, and um, they arrived the same month that Eric Williams, our first big um, nationalist, black nationalist leader, um, was campaigning for uh, change and for black, black leadership, um, home leadership, leadership from, from island state. And so my parents arrived abreast of the independence era 
in the 50s and 60s and four years led to eight, eight years led to 12 and they had children and settled down and they're still there. Now, I'm just, I can't talk about Trinidad with you without thinking about B.S. Naipaul. Yeah. I know, I can hear the ambivalence in your voice there. And there's a quote I, I really love from him that is so outrageous. He said, um, oh. the most difficult thing to overcome, this is in an interview he gave in the 70s, in fact, yeah. in 1976, my most difficult thing to overcome was being born in Trinidad, that crazy resort place. How on earth can you have serious writing from a crazy resort place? So this is what he well. said. Do you see Trinidad in the same way? Well, he plundered. I mean, he, he uh, wrote a lot from Trinidad, so I don't know what he's talking about. But he also famously said not that long ago, like in the 90s, that women can't write. We're too sentimental. We, we just don't have it in us. So, you know, um, I can't help thinking. Um, I, I, I find it hard because we have um, a whole new generation of Caribbean writers emerging now. There's been a sort of renaissance and 80% of these writers are female. So we've got incredible women, um, poets, fiction writers, um, non-fiction writers coming out of Jamaica, coming out of Trinidad, and we're all women. And, you know, but we have this kind of grandmaster who um, is so famous, who basically, you know, he, he said many things. He said many, you know, it's, it's not... You know, part it's toxic masculinity, um, which was so the norm and was very rife in the canon and, and rife in the generation above me. Um, and on the one hand, you could just say, oh, never mind, you know, don't even think about it. But I was a young writer once. And when I was in my 30s and I, I wanted to write, um, that was what was above me. That was what was ahead of me. Um, these kind of cruel old men, these cruel men who, you know, um, you know, mis openly misogynistic. Um, so things are changing. Things are changing. Good. Now, Monique, would you read to us from your book, please? Uh, yeah, sure. Okay. I'm going to read from um, early on when these um, American men have come to catch uh, a big fish and they have caught something and they don't know what it is yet. That thing's about to come up, shouted the father. Son of a goddamn bitch, it's coming up. Keep your rod up. The flat dark sea broke open and the mermaid rose up and out of the water, her hair flying like a nest of cables, her arms flung backwards in the jump, her body glistening with scales and her tail flailing, huge and muscular, like that of a creature from the deepest part of the ocean. She beat up and out, arcing through the air, so she flipped on her back. Men saw her head, her breasts, her belly, the pubic bone of a woman where it met the tail of a glistening fish. Jesus Christ, exclaimed Thomas Clayson. Nicer crossed himself. The black conch men gasped. Cut the line, shouted Nicer Country. Cut the goddamn line. All five men were horrified as she hit the water, thrashing. Her mouth was bloody, and she'd only just started to fight. On the end of Hank Clayson's rod was a wild creature, furious to be caught. Nyson knew they'd hooked something they shouldn't have. He jumped down from the flight bridge with his knife. The mermaid, or whatever it was, deserved to stay in the sea. This wasn't his business at all. The thing looked too big for the boat. It could take the boat down even. Don't do that, shouted Thomas Clayson, as Nicer bent to cut the line. Do not do that. She's worth millions. Millions. We're bringing her in, goddammit. We are bringing her in. She was on the surface now, thrashing like a mako shark, fighting the line with her arms, coughing up blood and spitting and screaming in a high wailing song. Oh, God, stammered Hank. Did you see that? His hands were shaking with the rod. The father wanted to take it from him. The black conch men, Nicholas and Shortleg, backed away from the stern. Like Nicer, they knew this was wrong. They frayed jumpy fish get catch. They didn't want to help. They were lost for words and for what to do. The white men wanted to pull this creature out of the sea. But this fish was half woman, plain enough. 
Everyone had heard of the mermen in Black Conch waters, but a merwoman? No. She carried with her bad luck at best, and her hair had frightened them, like she could kill with just one lash from those tentacles. She could poison them all. They'd seen spikes on her back, dorsal spikes, scorpion fish spikes. They had seen a bloody raging woman on the end of the fishing line. And now these white men, they wanted to bring her in? Now, nah, boy, they all said to themselves. The mermaid was now under the surface again. The younger Clayson's face fell. It was full of terror and excitement. Hold her, shouted the father. What does it look like I'm doing? The son snapped. Keep backing onto it, Thomas Clayson shouted to Nysa. But Nysa had begun to see dollar signs. If it had been him alone, he would have thrown her back in the sea. But the talk made him realize this could make him enough money for another boat, a new car, a small business of his own. Imagine that. He threw the throttle into reverse and slowed the boat down. The engine hummed. Nysa could feel his own curiosity grow. How much could she fetch? He backed the boat slowly onto the fish. The line had stopped going out. The younger Clayson was lifting and lowering his rod, lifting and lowering, and the line was now coming back onto the reel as fast as he could turn the reel handle. The mermaid had gone back under for now. That thing must weigh, what, 600 pounds, said Thomas Clayson. The ocean was flat and empty again and there was silence apart from the reel ticking over. Did you see her? said Hank Clayson. Hell yes, said the father. Did you see her tits? said the son. He was so entranced by what he had caught, it had loosened his tongue. Hell yes. Did you see her face? Yes. Did you see her arms? Yes. Did you see her pussy bone? Yes. All men nodded at this. We could sell her to the Smithsonian, said Thomas Clayson, or the Rockefeller Institute for research. I'll stop there. Thank you very much. I mean, that, that excerpt you've just been reading, Monique, reveals some very essential things about your mermaid, that she's a wild creature, that locally she's seen as bad luck, but those white tourists see her as a commodity worth money to them, like an exhibit in a free mm. show. And then that perception, that material greed infests locals as well, colonialism mm. and action. Mm. None of them really see her at all, do they? No, no. I mean, there's echoes of the monetarization and the sort of trafficking of, of people that uh, is, and, you know, has, is part of our history, um, whether it's been um, the early Taino people were enslaved, Africans were enslaved, Indians were indentured. It's just part of the his, his, this history of, of the region. But yeah, I wanted to experiment with this idea that even good men, uh, you dangle enough money in front of a good man and guess what, or a good woman, you know, how many of us um, could easily be corrupted? And there's a lot of that in this book as well. You know, how much is she worth? Um, everybody, it, it's life-changing money. And so, of course, you know, she's very vulnerable. Now, this is not the first book in which you played with form and voice like this. And I've read a, a quote from you where you said that you favor a more fragmented montage approach to fiction. And mm. you talked about learning from writers like Ondaatje and Le Guin. You are friends, of course, with mm -hmm. Bernadine Avaristo as well. Yeah. Why are you drawn to this more fragmented approach? Um... I don't know. This is just my way, my method. Um, I guess it's just my way. It's just, I think it's a lifetime of reading. Um, uh, the, the people I read, the thing, the, the things I'm drawn to, of, of, I mean, I'm not sure. I think I have, I know I haven't written anything uh, that hasn't been a patchwork of point of views. Um, I think there's some part of me that wants to avoid um, being episodic. Um, I think following one point of view for a very long time um, can be relentless. You, I mean, you've got to, I mean, I see it's, it's great for crime fiction. It's great for um, a narrator who's, you know, propelling a narrative along. Um, 
but I guess where where with with this with lots of my books, I I want more than one person to have their say, and um, to chop up um, a story so we get different people's take on on what's going on. And this reminds me, by the way, of a conversation I had with Gino Diaz about his uh, Caribbean novel, The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde, where he undermines the narration with footnotes yeah. at the time. So there's always yeah. a sense there are, are voices that think differently or have other things to say, disrupting, yeah. as you say, that sort of episodic flow. Yeah. Stopping you from reading it. Yeah, yeah, precisely. Um, it's it's like life. I mean, if, I, if, if uh, Gabriel or... Um, Josh was to tell, or any of us was to tell each other a story. It's it's not likely that you would start here a at something that happened here and tell something seamlessly and chronologically through to the end. When we when we talk to each other, we tend to float about anyway. We tend to jump backwards and forwards. We tend to sometimes use voices, other people's voices. We tend to backtrack. We tend to elaborate. So verbal oral storytelling isn't chronological um we tend we tend to mix it up anyway so i guess the way i write is a little bit like how i might actually tell a story as well this is really fascinating monique i'm sorry that we have to stop right now but please don't go away sure. uh, we'll be returning to you to talk again at the end thank you so much sure pleasure Kia ora. our next guest is JP Pomare, who grew up on a horse racing farm outside Rotorua and now lives in Melbourne, a distant land. His best-selling psychological thrillers are praised for their taut and pacey story, stories and their stylish narratives. Call Me Evie was a tale of kidnap and fractured memory set in the Bay of Plenty and it won Best First Novel at the 2019 Nia Marsh Awards in the clearing his disturbing, page-turning second novel explored life in a cult from two perspectives. His latest novel is Tell Me Lies, narrated by Margot Scott, a psychologist implicated in the death of one of her clients. Kia ora, Josh, and welcome. Kia ora, Paula. Thanks for having me. Delighted to have you. Now, your first two books had rural and quite isolated settings, but this new book is an urban book in its settings and its sensibilities. Does your adopted home of Melbourne lend itself, you think, to dark deeds and dark stories? Um, no, I think uh, I, I think my heart's always in the country and regional um, regional areas. I think my next novel that uh, I'm working on is sort of set between Auckland City and Lake Tarawera. So, um, you know, a mix of rural and city, although the city elements are aren't contingent on the fact that set in the city if that makes sense um and and that i think that was the case of tell me lies as well um part of it was a, a almost a commercial decision to to focus entirely on the narrative as opposed to the setting and i think the setting uh for, for lack of a better word really contaminates my my stories i think um and i and i wanted it to be almost like the sterile place where um we can look at this you know uh this how a psychologist functions essentially without um, looking at the politics of small town or anything like that. It also just so happens I was living in the suburb where it's set and that made research much easier. Um, and then having to fly away to wherever it was uh, I was writing about. So yeah, it's, it's entirely different thing um, to write a, a book set in the city um, and everyone knows what a city is like and all cities are alike in many ways. So to find something kind of distinct about Melbourne was, was quite fun as well. Um, and to try to capture Melbourne's atmosphere was quite fun. Um, where I think it comes much more naturally to me to write these rural uh, regional settings. Just thinking about Melbourne and you say about capturing the atmosphere, what do you think is the, the special or particular atmosphere of Melbourne, which is quite unlike other Australian cities, isn't it? Yeah, um, it's, it's odd because this part of Melbourne is uh, almost like Sydney, you know, where I chose to set it, is, um, is, is very affluent um, and it, it, there's, there's, it's quite performative in the way that people show how affluent they are in, in this part of the country, um, more so than the rest of Melbourne. But I'd say the atmosphere of Melbourne is, um, is reasonably sort of brooding, I guess. Um, you know, there's... Melbourneites are pretty proud to be um, coffee snobs and just um, 
constantly wearing uh, neutral colours or, or more often than not black. And um, the weather, as as most people who visit Melbourne learn, it's four seasons in one day, you know. Um, <clears throat> we can at once be the hottest country and in the same day be uh, the hottest city and in the same day be the coldest. Um, and, and you know, so, so it's this really odd place where everyone's just used to um, this sort of sense of impermanence as well, I, I find, um, because things are always changing so quickly. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's having spent a bit of, you know, the last few days in Auckland uh, before, I, before I flew back, um, I, I began to, because I've been in Melbourne for lockdowns and things for, for as long as I think I've ever been since I moved to Australia, um, I've really can now appreciate how different it is as a city to, to say the likes of Auckland or Sydney or Brisbane. I mean, I could talk about this with you all day, but I need to get back to your book. Um, are you a master of the unreliable narrator? So is first person always your choice for a thriller, do you think, moving forward? Yeah, thank you. Thanks for saying. Um, I, I don't know. I, I was sort of struck by what um, Monique said, and, and, and I think that resonate, resonated with me as well, this sort of um, almost fractious approach to storytelling. Um and although, you know, I always, uh, thus far, I've only written in first person, um, I, I'm always incorporating sort, sort of narrative elements um, from different voices, usually like a, it might be a podcast episode or, um, you know, in, in this particular instance, I think there's court transcripts, newspaper articles and letters and things as well. Um, and I think that's, I think it gets boring as a writer to stick with one voice, um, but certainly in suspense and thriller writing, I think it's it is pretty essential to get um, quite deep into the interior world of of your characters. Um, and obviously, you know, it's much easier to do that from first person perspective. I also think I, I, I like. Um, I think if you've got a pretty interesting voice or your character has a pretty interesting sort of narrative voice. Um, I think it's a crime not to access that and, and not to write, you know, pretty close from their perspective. Um, and, you know, I, in Call Me Evie and certainly in, in The Clearing, I think that was the case. I was sort of pretty fascinated with these characters and, and their voice. Um, probably less so of Tell Me Lies, but I still wanted that immediacy and that closeness of first person. Um, yeah, and, and as I said, it's much more common and psychological thrillers as opposed to general crime or, or sort of um, detective fiction or whatever, where um, it's almost a device to have a little bit of distance so you don't know what the characters are thinking. Um, but, yeah, no, it's, it, I think it is uh, also, as you said, it, it lends itself to the opportunity to have that sort of unreliable um, narrator and, and all narrators are unreliable to some extent. And part of the fun, I think, in first person is trying to work out how unreliable this narrator is and, and how much you can actually trust their version of events or their, their perspective. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and one of the, the fantastic things about this book, which we can't discuss because it would give things away, is what mm. a liar your main <laughs> character turns out to be. Josh, would you read to us from the book, please? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm never prepared for these things, and it's uh, largely because I just think if I... I always go to the beginning because there's no spoilers. Um, uh, there's also one character ha has an Irish accent. I'm, not, I'm just, I, I refuse to do it. <laughs> um, it. Hopefully it's clear which one it is. It's, uh, yeah. Um, so this is the beginning. Uh, <clears throat> Cormac is doing that thing again. He is the one asking the questions, not me. It's not entirely uncommon as a defence mechanism. If I'm asking the questions, I'm in control of the exchange, and some people don't like that. Type A personalities need control as they fear being manipulated. When cornered, they might ask their own questions to pry back that control. But it's not so simple with Cormac. He's not that kind of man. He's asking me questions because he's curious. He wants to get to know me before he can trust me. Despite the clinical setting and the fact he's a client, Trust is at the core of the relationship. Trust is the silent contract we form. But I don't like the questions. I don't like giving up too much of myself. So you moved here as a kid then, he says, in his breezy Irish lilt. Yes, I say. 
When I was six, we moved to the city for my dad's work, and I've been here ever since. What did your dad do then? He was a professor. So they didn't need professors where you'd come from. I keep his gaze. I show I'm still in control, even if he's asking me questions. Well, they did, but he got a head of department role down here at a university. Those bastards, he says with a grin. Nothing against your old man, but it was a head of department that booted me. It's healthy that he can laugh about it. Most young men would respond with more anger. Do you blame the head of department for what happened? Not him. I blame myself. I did it. No one else. I could have done something different to earn a little money. The papers you all wrote earned A's. They did. You've done your homework. Not homework. It was in the email from Adam Limbargo, the man who referred him on. Adam, I met at university over 20 years ago, and he's still there lecturing in anthropology. I've always felt like I've owed him a favour. He was a year or two older, but he always looked after me when most older guys were more likely to try getting me into bed. It was a boozy night. I was stuck in the city and had lost my purse at a bar. Despite being in a drunken state himself, Adam put me in a taxi with enough cash for the fare. Last time we met, it was at a cafe over coffee. What I thought was an old friend hoping to catch up, I quickly realised was a counselling session for him. You'd be surprised how often it happens. I hear from someone out of the blue wanting me to dispense free advice. He bought me a coffee, then told me about his problem. After that, I didn't hear from him for months until he sent me this email. Hello, Margot. It's been a while. I caught your guest lecture in April. I was at the back of the theatre and didn't have time to say hello, but I did love your take on evil as a necessary ideal. It's fascinating to think about the origin of the concept of evil, how it really is just a label for treatable behaviour that falls within the spectrum of antisocial personality disorder, sociopathy, psychopathy, etc. But I'm not just writing to gush about your genius, Margot. I'm sorry for the circumstances when we last caught up. I was in a dark place. Now I'm contacting you again because I have another favour to ask. I have a student who has been expelled from university. His name is Cormac Gibbons, and to say he's remarkable is an, ex is an understatement. Long story short, I believe Cormac could have an extraordinary career as a psychologist. The trouble is he decided that it would be wise to write 16 papers for other students in various courses. I should add they all earned A or A-plus marks, but that is beside the point. Most of the students have been punished in one way or another, but the university had no choice but to move Cormac on. I don't understand people the way you do, Margot, but I know that Cormac was smart enough to comprehend the risks and consequences of his actions for a relatively small reward, and yet he still did it. He must have known he would get caught. This begs the question, why would a student on a full scholarship risk education for such a modest amount of money? It's risk-seeking behaviour. The least, it's almost as though he wanted us to throw him out. I'll leave it up to you being a professional. Cormac has agreed to see you and I'll be paying his fees if you can find time for the boy. Can you help? All the best, Adam. I continue the session. And how did you get caught? Someone came to me. I guess she knew what I was doing. She paid me for an essay and when I wrote it, she took it out to the head department. Entrapment, you could call it. So you blame her? No, he says. His eyes move about the room. The vintage red seed wardrobe I found in a store in Brisbane. The scrolled desk. Tidy now. But this morning it was cluttered with notes and bills. The small lockable filing cabinet where I keep recent notes from patients. And then his eyes settle on the painting on my wall. It's boring, but they're supposed to be boring. A landscape. Rural Victoria. Dark barn in the distance. He turns back to me when I, when I begin to speak again. Well, who do you blame then? Why are you asking? Am I supposed to admit that I blame myself? You want me to accept responsibility? I told you, I do blame myself. But do you really believe it, or are you just telling me that? His eyes find the window now and fix there. Of course I do. I might actually finish there. I, I feel like that's probably five minutes. Okay, that's really great, Josh. Thank you. Um, your novel also explores the, the really toxic side of online activity, like doxing and swatting. Do you think our, our era of surveillance and exposure online is growing even more sinister? Yeah, I'm growing more and more fascinated. I, I was speaking um, with another author, Jock Sarong, actually, yesterday, who's um, who's here at a festival, um, about this. You know, I, f I find, and it's, it's not a common um, or brand new perspective, I suppose, but I find that, uh, you know, technology, there's still people naive enough to believe that technology um, alone is going to solve our problems. Um, and, you know, we have so much evidence now that 
the opposite is true, particularly when we're talking about um, computing and automation, um, but also just this instant um, communication and access to communication and access to everyone at, at all times around the world. Um, and the gaming industry is a particularly, I think, um, toxic uh, environment. It's, it's um, in terms of, you know, how people communicate and access communicate, it's not entirely, you know, regulated. And, and these are often young boys, uh, young, young men and women, but these are young people, impressionable people. These are um, people using the sort of language that would make all of us blush, saying completely um, horrible things to each other without any sort of sense of consequence or, or without any sort of thought at all. Um, and doxing, you know, doxing, I think, is problematic. I think that's, um, it's it's illegal, you know, um, anyway, uh, to release private information about people. So it, there, there are enforceable consequences of that. Um, but, you know, given the anonymity of the, the internet, it's, um, even that's, hard to do you know to, even to enforce laws around doxing is pretty hard to do and swatting uh, takes us one step further you know there have been arrests for swatting but it's only been when people have died or or they've been um and for anyone who doesn't know what swatting is it's when uh many many people often young people stream themselves playing video games um and these people uh um other people will find out their actual addresses and will call in um, usually a, a, a violent crime to this address. So someone's got hostages or a gun or something. And so a SWAT team will turn up and when they're streaming and you can go to YouTube and you can find countless videos of this actually happening. And tragically, uh, one, a man in, in the US was killed. Um, all he was doing was gaming. Uh, and, but but actually, no, he wasn't. The, the person who was gaming wasn't killed. The, the swatter got the address wrong and sent it to one of his neighbours or something. And um, and this innocent man was shot by the police because they thought he had hostages inside. Um, and so, you know, this is insane. This is actually, it, it, it's how people don't understand the significant consequences. And because they know that they can get away with it, because they have that distance of the internet of um, proxy servers and, and anonymity, they they actually just do it without any thought whatsoever about the actual consequences. Um, and you know, the, 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 going back to the language we use, the, the interesting thing about this book was Margot's perspective on, um, and this might be evidence of the authorial hand because it's probably my perspective as well, is about um, her perspective on the effects of the psychology of the people using this language as well as the people who are um, at the other end of it, when people are routinely told to kill themselves for, for being not very good at a game online, it's um, that does have a pretty significant psychological effect, whether or not, um, you know, whether or not the person using the language has the intention of, you know, if they want that person to kill themselves, of course they don't. Um, using slurs and things constantly you know these things do have a psychological impact and so i sort of wanted to just prod at that as well because it's something i'm pretty interested in no it is really interesting and i'm afraid that we're out of time uh josh but i do want to mention that you have a po podcast series you mentioned in passing called on writing would you just tell us very briefly about that yeah um i, I, I sort of actually put it a little bit on hold because um uh, I've got a little baby at home and I don't really have time to do much other than write and, and parent. But um, yeah, essentially it's just, uh, I started it probably four or five years ago and I just wanted to speak to some of my favourite authors and some of the authors I most admired. And um, yeah, it's just usually it's sort of our long conversations with authors from, I've had sort of Joyce Carol Oates and John Saffron, and, um, but also lots of debut Australian authors as well and um, a couple of Kiwi authors. So yeah, it's been fun. And how can people find these podcasts, Josh? Uh, it's on, I guess it's on all, well, not all, but most um, podcast directories. So you can find it on um, iTunes and uh, whatever the other ones are, Stitcher. I don't okay. know. <laughs> That's really great. Thank you so much. Please stick around. Uh, but our final writer this morning to discuss with, uh, book with is Gabriel Byrne. He is extremely famous as an actor in theatre, television and film. My particular favourites, Miller's Crossing, Usual Suspects and Treatment. His memoir, Walking with Ghosts, about his boyhood in Ireland 
and the strange geysers and moments of his acting life is <laughs> thoughtful and utterly moving. I have always found refuge in the imagination, he writes. As a child, I would escape hurt and loneliness by taking refuge in stories I would create for myself. Later, as an adult, when I found my identity shattered by sorrow or even success, when I didn't know who I was, I retreated into a world of imagining. This, Colin McCann says, is a book that will wring out our tired hearts. Kia ora, Gabriel, and welcome. Um, I'll say that in Gaelic. Thank you very much. Uh, Gabriel, you have written a beautiful book, and it is so well written. It makes me think that your acting life was the wrong vocation. Now, I believe you wrote this book on an iPad after losing the first draft, and that's, that's huge determination. Why now for this memoir? First of all, it was fascinating listening to both uh, Monique and, and uh, Josh. <clears throat> uh, I think it was a sad day for me when the quill went out of business, really. I'm not built for uh, the modern technological age at all. I had just written the end and said, well, I better just add something here. Uh, and I went to add something and the thing disappeared into the ether. So I had to go to a place where they have these geniuses, you know, these guys who come out in T-shirts and tell you, you know, what's wrong with your iPad or your computer. And they told me that not even the CIA's resident top genius could ever get it back. It was gone forever. So I had to restart. I had to start again, which uh, obviously I didn't want to do. But, um, yes, that was... Um, that was a bit of a heartbreaker for, for a couple of months until I decided, okay, I, I need to just get over this and, and do it. And then I read about a man who left his Stradivarius in the back of a taxi. And I thought, well, you know, things like this do happen. And maybe they happen for some reason, which I still don't understand. But there we go. Now, in the book, you offer some glimpses into your life as an actor but it's much more about really the people and places of your youth and your parents in particular. And by the end of Walking With Ghosts, the book really felt like, to me, like an ode to your late parents. Is this how you saw it? Yeah. I, what I wanted to do, I didn't want to do, um, as Monique was saying, I, I, was more, I, I wasn't so, so interested in a sequential narrative about you know the, the my career or so forth what i wanted to do was try to look at the influences that formed me as a man and they were societal religious um uh, familial and to look at those and to see how those influences determined the course that i would take in my in my life and I grew up in Ireland in a, in a time which was darkly repressive uh, for so many of um, our population, especially women. And so, when I, for example, when I looked at my mother's life, I saw her as the victim of um, not just the circumstances of, of her material life, but the influences that kept her in this prison as a woman as a wife and how my father who was made redundant at 40 46 years of age and never worked again how that influenced him i only began to understand it later on when i looked back on it and said what must that have been like at 46 years of age to be told that you never that you were on the scrap heap basically and my mother had to go out to work and my father stayed at home uh, to take care of us uh, which was most unusual. Um, it's a funny thing that when you look back a bit, uh, you know, on the influence of, 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 certainly in my case, of my parents, um, I listened to them, but I never heard them. Never, never really heard what they were saying. And now I be, you know, I begin to hear them and I begin to see them in all their vulnerability with their faults and with their virtues too. 
and to realize how much of a product I am, not just of the society that I grew up in, which is intensely repressively religious, I have to say. And my parents being trapped in that world economically and religiously as well. But I didn't want the book to be about acting. I wanted the book to be about the... I wanted to be honest. I don't think there's any point in writing a memoir if you're not going to be honest. And uh, I was... I think... Um, I went to a vulnerable place in myself to write about how I had betrayed people, how I had betrayed myself also, um, and how, you know, I had a conflicted attitude to my parents. I was afraid that my mother would swallow my soul if I became too close to her. And I wanted to free myself from that society, from those people. And so I took off at 11 years of age to go to to, to, to become a priest in the seminary at 11, leaving Ireland on a boat, going to a country I'd never been to, um, and how that influenced the rest of my life. And I talk about the sexual abuse there. Catholicism and sexual abuse, it's almost like become the same sentence now, but that's what happened to me. And, um, and then I talk about what success actually, when success comes, what does it mean? What do you think about success before it happens? And then it happens. And then you think, what the hell is this? Because the book is also an examination, I think, of identity, who you are as a child, who you are as a teenager, who you are when you're uh, a young adult. And then suddenly this thing happens to you and you have to, you have to look at the, the, who you are. They look at your identity again and you find that success, well, in my case, was actually a very scary thing. And I recount in the book about how I actually ran from it um, because I had seen enough of people being famous and being around people who are famous to know what happened. And as I said in the book, it's not that you change per se, it's that people around you change and they make you feel that you're somehow different. But ironically, you're the same, two, same old two and sixpence inside that you always were. Gabriel, would you read to us from the book, please? Yeah, I'll read just a little bit uh, from the start. So um, if Tom is there, tell him to jump in and then tell me to shut up when, uh, um, when he's ready. Okay. Um, uh, this is just said from the beginning of the book about how I came to be born. Uh, my parents foresaw one another on a night in November in 1948. My father recalled, You see, I ran away from home to the city as quick as ever I could because I wanted more than just laboring for the big farmers snagging turnips out in all weathers. So do you know what I did? I joined the army to see the world. Well, I never got beyond Dublin. That's how far I got. Till that night, I took shelter in the doorway and your mother was standing beside me and I wanted to talk to her, but... I was a bit timid and I didn't want to be too forward and I couldn't think of anything to say. Then I saw her with no matches for her cigarette and that was me in. I just knew she was for me. And we got married in Westland Road short, shortly after and in less than a year into the world, we brought you. My mother told me, we used to play tennis and go to the dances on our nights off at the Metropole mostly. All the nurses did. It had a grand ballroom and a good orchestra, always stuffed to the gills. Well, one night I was coming in on the bus to meet a few of the girls for something to eat in Wynn's Hotel before the dance. Wasn't done at that time for women to be smoking on the bus, so I hopped off at the stop before the bridge. It started to rain, and the next thing I was in the doorway of a shop and rooting in my handbag for matches, and this fellow in an army uniform leaned over with a match and his hand over the flame. We got talking, and it turned out he was off to the Metropole as well. Well, we danced that night, and we met them next week, and that was it for good and for all. It was our fate to meet like that because of the rain and the matches and the metropole and the doorways. And if it hadn't happened like that, you mightn't be here now. Isn't that a strange thing to think, the way we all come into the world? 
Oh, you gave the fight not to come? Out you landed in the end and you didn't like it one bit. The red pussy on you and the baldy head. Not a lick of hair. Upside down, a slap on the arse to set you roaring. The whole country kept wide awake. Three o'clock in the morning, they returned to hospital there beside the gate theatre. Lying later on my shoulder. Eyes shut tight. Sleeping like a kitten. Oh, but a cranky lump if you didn't get a sup at the breast. Wrapped in the christening shawl that was my own grandmother's. Do you remember that shawl? The loveliest thing. Made by a blind nun in Scotland. My own mother was christened in it and did duty for all six of you. Three boys, three girls. The same priest pouring the water over all your heads. And you the first. When I'd start the show, the neighbours would be saying, Time to get the shawl ready, Mrs. B. Six was a small family for that time. Mrs. Brown in the street beyond had 23 children. Oh, the poor creature, my mother used to say. The only holiday she ever got was the 10 days above in the maternity hospital, then back to slaving and trying to keep body and soul together and a roof over their heads. We ferried you home in your uncle's vegetable van, driving like a snail so as not to disturb your majesty till home safe and sound and all the neighbours come in for a good gawk with their raw mesh and pass remark and he's the spit of his mother. I'll stop it there. Really, uh, really, because we could listen to you all day. It's so fantastic. Your, your, the way you have dialogue on the page is absolutely entrancing. It is a masterclass. Oh, okay, Gabriel. In the memoir as well, you are very frank about the hold of alcohol in your life and you reveal you've been sober for more than 20 years. You say alcohol became your most trusted friend before it betrayed me. Is this one of the, the, the cultural inheritances you were talking about? Something that, that you learned and saw as a boy and that eventually held you captive? Yes, it was the culture. Um, you grew up wanting to emulate the men you saw around you. Uh, without any question, because nobody had ever said to you, maybe this is not something that you want to emulate. So I was given a cigarette when I was 10, and I drank whiskey when I was maybe nine. And everybody thought that drinking the whiskey was a funny thing. And I thought that having a cigarette in my mouth and blowing the smoke through my nose made me like the man. And... Um, so when you grow up in that kind of a culture, um, to be in the pub was where everybody met. That's, that's where life took place. Women were in the snug away from everybody else, but the men were in the pub talking and discussing football and, you know, slagging each other and drinking pints and so forth. That's what you saw. That's what you wanted to be. But of course, alcohol is a drug and it also is a very addictive drug, but it also covers the parts of you that are in pain. And if you're carrying that pain unconsciously, alcohol is something that soothes it out. And paradoxically, it gives you a kind of a purpose in life because you're either dealing with being drunk or being hungover. And so you're, you're just living in that world. And then you begin to think that you can never break out of it because to break out of it would be to be in a world that you just did not know or understand. And uh, fortunately, I broke out of it. And that meant I had to break with the culture. And that, that meant I had to break with everything that surrounded that because it was also an ideal of masculinity. Men came home from work. They put the wage packet on the mantelpiece. Their mother opened it. She gave them back money for cigarettes and alcohol and drink. And the rest went on food. That's the way men, the men went to the pub, the women stayed at home and did the cooking. And um, so to break with the culture, to, to break with this incredibly Taliban-esque, repressive religion, where women, I mean, I'm sure all, you know, everybody's au fait with the, the scandals that have been dug up about the Catholic Church. Recently, 58 bodies of babies found in a septic tank that were thrown in there because they were born out of wedlock. 
for example, young women who got pregnant being forced to go to England to backstreet abortionists, the men never questioned about it. So uh, Ireland ruled by uh, a tyrant called Archbishop McQuaid, who used to drive around the city and tell uh, uh, people who had clothes shops to cover up the mannequins, that they were a source of temptation to young men. And who had a surveillance, you're talking about surveillance there, uh, earlier on, who had a surveillance network that he learned from J. Edgar Hoover to keep an eye on people who might be uh, troublesome in relation to the Catholic Church. Anyway, when I left Ireland, uh, finally at 27, I went to London and then I went to America and then I went to Los Angeles, to Hollywood, and I lived in Beverly Hills. And um, Yeah, so it's been a kind of a journey for me. Um, and yet... And I sense something of this in, uh, you know, when Monique was talking about the pull that the, the, the pull that home has on you and the conflict that you that you experience living between two cultures. Am I from there or am I from here? If I go back there, I know I don't belong in the same way ever again. And I don't really belong here either. So uh, the exile, the immigrant, the emigrant, that particular um um conflict that Edward Said wrote so uh, you know so beautifully and so movingly about is something that I've carried with me and I don't know if I can go back again all I know is that from from the culture that I was raised in I derived incredible gifts um poetry from my mother uh prose images and just it just occurred to me when monique was reading there the first time i ever had what i could only describe as at 10 years of age an erotic kind of a story which i didn't understand at all was reading a, a short story by oscar wilde called the fisherman and his soul i don't know if you're familiar with that particular one but anyway, it's about a mermaid that uh, this fisherman catches a mermaid. And that's a big theme in Irish folk uh, folk literature is the idea of the selkie, the woman who's brought in from the sea and marries a man. And her if she gets her skin back, the man has to hide the skin. And it strikes me now as being a perfect metaphor for, as you were saying, money control. And this is where you live now and this is who you are. But her skin is up. Is her skin, the skin of the mermaid, is hidden, and she must go return to her true nature, which is beneath the sea. But anyway, I just I'm throwing that in there because it just occurred to me. But um, I, because of my background in films, I'm much more interested, I think, in images and how images produce emotion, and how dialogue is sometimes like a very thin pen nib under the you know to you know to try to make the reader feel the sensual world of what you're trying to talk about, the sights, the sounds, and, and, and so forth. But also, I tried to write it just to finish off briefly, um, in a way, exactly what Monique was talking about, in that narration isn't about, you know, this happened and then that happened. The past, the present, the future are all intermixed in the telling of a story. And if you listen to an Irish person telling the story, you know, you'd be tempted to say, Jesus, will you get on with it? Is there any point to this story? And oftentimes there's no point to it. It's the telling of it that matters. But you can be living in the past and the future. And those old storytellers understood the idea of um, authenticity in storytelling. They didn't believe in it, of course, but they, they they put it up front to pretend that they did actually. So they'd say, "Well, this happened. This didn't happen to me, and it didn't happen to my father, and it didn't happen to my father's father, father. But it did happen to a man that knew them." And so they put it in the area of it's real, but I'm not actually, you know. And I suppose the last thing I'd like to say is that everybody, as Josh said, is an unreliable. Uh, narrator and you have to be incredibly careful with memory you know is this true did this happen is this the spirit of what actually happened yes okay i'll go with that if it isn't don't put it down 
Gabriel, let's bring in um, Monique and Josh to join this conversation. It's really fantastic. I mean, what you're describing as well, it seems very Joycean to me. It seems actually very Maori to me, the idea of the living and the dead walking together. Uh, Monique, in, in your work, in thinking about your Trinidadian roots and the culture you're writing about, is that notion of, of the living and the dead together something that's very present in, in your work and your mind too? Oh, my God, so many things that Gabriel was saying. I just was, like, nodding, going, yes, 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 yes. Um, funnily, and just funnily enough, I did a reading for the Dublin Literary Festival, and I had an Irish uh, woman interview me, and she said, oh, my God, this could have been set in Ireland. It's like, mm -hmm. you know, everything you're writing about is like coming from a small place. Everybody knows who you are. You can't move because someone knew your mother and someone knows your grandmother. Somebody says this, blah, blah, blah. Anyway. But yeah, no, um, what were you saying? Storytelling, living and dead. Um, oh God, you know, where do I start? <clears throat> and and um, you can't even start I mean, there, I'm really sorry, because you're running out of time. Be really... Uh, yeah, running out of time. Anyway, <laughs> this is great. I don't know what to say. Well, I think we should just say to read more of your books, obviously. Josh, do you yeah. have anything you want to you wanna nip in really quickly and say about the living and the dead? Um, no, I, I mean, it sort of doesn't... Um, certainly not this, not my latest book. It doesn't really, uh, really work. I, I guess it's, um, I would say, well, I agree with you, Paul. I think it's a part of Maori culture as well. I think even how we celebrate the life of our dead with tangi. Um, and, and I think, yeah, I, I think it's, in certain cultures, it's not quite as celebrated. But, uh, but um, when Gabriel was talking, and, and it, now that you bring it up, there is definitely parallels there as well. No, it's really amazing. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thanks so much to our three guests today, uh, Monique Roffey, JP Pomode, and Gabriel Byrne. We hope to see you all in Auckland before too long in person. And please, audience members, remember the books of all these authors, all the authors featured in our salons, are available for sale at the venue. Thanks so much for joining us for this Autumn Salon series. It's been a pleasure to host it. A privilege to talk to nine other writers of such varied style, subject matter, and kaupapa. Please enjoy the last day of the festival. Haidera. Tanakwe, you've been listening to a podcast from the 2021 Auckland Writers Festival Waituhi or Tamaki. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews, and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud, and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.